da 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 Hi, I'm Nathan Inzarello. And I'm Nikki Jacobs. Welcome to Theater Couch Podcast. We're two actors, married to each other, who talk about theater so much we thought you'd want to hear about it. Every episode, we'll dare to deconstruct a play, extract its larger meanings, and find some laughs along the way. This is episode three, and today's play is Indecent, written by Paula Vogel. So grab a beverage, kick off your shoes, and join us as we dive headfirst into the world of Indecent. Direct from our living room, comfortably seated on the theater couch. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the theater couch. How are you doing today, Nikki? I am doing great. I've got my nice, warm ginger tea from the loose leaves. <laughs> I'm uh, moving on from tea bags. Very nice. <laughs> I still How have a tea, I still have a tea bag. I'm I'm having echinacea tea. It's, it's oh. delicious. Oh, you dinosaur. <laughs> you need to step it up in the tea department. I'm trying. <laughs> so this this is a tough one today. This is a tough one. They're all tough, I suppose, in, yeah, their, in their own way. They are. They're, I think a really good play is a tough nut to crack, um, and yet an enjoyable one to crack as well. Yeah. Um, but go ahead and explain why this one well, you feel is particularly tough. Well, first, this is a constructionist play, which means that you never lose sight that you're watching a play. We begin with a troop of actors with suitcases all sort of coming together, and they acknowledge from the beginning of the play that they are an acting troupe telling a story. So that's an interesting theater device, and you have to think about the play in terms of not only these actors playing the parts, but also the characters that they that they themselves are playing. So they're actors playing actors playing actors. Yeah, yeah, which can get confusing. But I don't think it does in Indecent, because... It's Paula Vogel, yeah, who is a very talented playwright. Oh, yeah, especially in the reading of it. After a while, you forget about it. You forget that that is a device in the play, and you just engage with the characters. You just accept it. Um, and she does a good job of fleshing out the story with the device. Mm-hmm. She's not just hammering you on the head with the device. She's actually using it in a way that communicates the story really well. Mm-hmm. So, unless you have read Indecent, our audience members don't know anything about this play. Let's, let's jump yeah, into let's the, them in. Let's we jump don't into keep, the synopsis. Yeah, don't keep them in the dark much longer. All right. The play is about the controversy surrounding another play, a Yiddish play, God of Vengeance, written by Polish-Jewish playwright Shalom Ash in 1906. God of Vengeance tells the love story between a prostitute, Mankey, and the daughter of the brothel owner, Rivkala. The first reading of the play at a local salon divides the audience. Some are bothered by the lesbian love story, uh, the throwing of a Torah across the room, the mere fact that it deals with prostitutes. Lemel, a young tailor present at the first reading, becomes the first outspoken supporter of the play, despite its controversial material. So, the play gets produced in Berlin and finds success throughout Europe before eventually heading to New York where it has continued success in the original Yiddish. 
We get to meet all the actors who are risking their careers and putting their futures on the line to put on this play. In 1923, the play premiered on Broadway with an English translation and revised plot which removes the love scenes between the two women and instead suggests that Mankey actually seduces Rivkala into prostitution. The producer insists this new version will be more palatable to a Broadway audience, but even with the changes, the entire cast is arrested and successfully prosecuted for obscenity. After which, Lemel returns to Europe with the original Yiddish manuscript, convinced of its intrinsic value and determined to keep the play going. Throughout all of this, Ash has been traumatized by the rise of anti-Semitism and later the Holocaust, He becomes a recluse at his Staten Island home, first refusing to help the play's development, and later refusing to testify in the obscenity trial. When he finally chooses to leave America, the world has become a very different place, and Ash doesn't believe that God of Vengeance has a place in it anymore. I want to mention here that the play Indecent is not 100% historically accurate. There's a lot of condensing of these people's lives and some moving around of when things happen. I know you have a lot more to say about the history, not only of Shalom Ash, but also of the play's production and also Paula Vogel. Yes, let me start first with Paula Vogel, our featured playwright for the day, who wrote <laughs> Indecent. She was born in Washington, D.C. in 1951. She was brought up by a Roman Catholic mother and a Jewish father. She taught for many years in academia, managing the playwriting program at Brown University, then serving as the Eugene O'Neill Professor of Playwriting at Yale School of Drama. Mm -hmm. She first caught national attention with her play, The Baltimore Waltz, which focuses on the topic of AIDS. It earned her the 1992 Obie Award. Additional works include The Oldest Profession, Desdemona, a play about a handkerchief, (laughs) Hot and Throbbing, and her 1998 Pulitzer Prize-winning masterpiece, How I Learned to Drive. Paula Vogel's play, Indecent, is where we turn our attention today, of course, and it was first performed in October 2015 at Yale Repertory Theater under the direction of Rebecca Tashman. And Paula Vogel wrote in the preface of the play that Tashman was the one who called her and actually initiated the writing of this play. Yes. So it was not originally her idea. She was, in a way, I guess you could say, being commissioned to take the responsibility of writing a play about this play. I want to give a little history about the playwright of God of Vengeance because... It's really important to understand him and the actual history of God of Vengeance in order to understand what the heck Nathan and I are going to be talking about in terms of indecent. And we're going to have to say the play titles a lot so that we're clear when we're talking about the God of Vengeance and when we're talking about indecent. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We don't want you to get confused because they are so... Because we're confused. (laughs) Well... You know, they're absolutely intertwined because one is portraying the other. But anyway, Shalom Ash was born in 1880 and died in 1957. Born in Russian Poland, he was a Yiddish playwright, novelist, and essayist. He was raised in a Hasidic household and was therefore educated in traditional Judaism. 
His parents wanted him to become a rabbi, but as a teenager, he became drawn to the ideas of the Enlightenment and also became enthralled with any secular books, meaning any knowledge that he could collect outside of Judaism. Once he moved to Warsaw, he tried his hand at writing after meeting Yiddish writer I.L. Peretz. And following Ash's early writings, he wrote God of Vengeance in 1906. It premiered in Berlin in 1907 with a six-month run. And as we mentioned before, it became very successful. It was translated into many languages in Europe and was performed around Europe. All over Europe. Now let's get to the time at which it traveled to New York. And I want to talk about David Kessler. I'm really, I, I want to study this guy more. <laughs> uh, he, I found him really intriguing. He was a star Yiddish actor. And he opened a production of God of Vengeance in New York. And when he opened this production, it caused quite a stir within the Jewish community of New York for its portrayal of a Jewish couple running a secret brothel and its scene portraying a lesbian kiss. At the time, it was considered scandalous. Of course, some people would consider it scandalous now, uh, unnecessarily in my opinion, but uh, <laughs> it sparked a conflict amongst the Jewish press. Some Jewish newspapers deemed the play, quote, immoral, filthy, and indecent, unquote, while others referred to it as, quote, moral, artistic, and beautiful, unquote. Very different opinions. Right there we have indecent. <laughs> yeah. And this controversy revisited God of Vengeance at its Broadway debut in 1923 when the cast, its producer, Harry Weinberger, and one of the theater owners were indicted for violation of the state penal code, then subsequently put on trial and convicted on charges of obscenity. And now what is obscenity? Like, what, what exactly is it? Obscenity is defined by law as the utterance or act that offends the prevailing morality of the time. It's a little loosey-goosey. Yes, it's extremely loosey-goosey. I want to veer back to Paula Vogel. She researched Jewish history and Yiddish literature in the early 1970s when she was at Cornell University. A professor there recommended she read God of Vengeance. She was drawn to the daring subject matter Shalom Ash used in the play. Many years later, she chose to tell the story of God of Vengeance through the lens of her play Indecent, focusing not so much on the obscenity trial itself, but on the actors and crew who kept it alive for so many years in Europe and then New York. It's so fascinating that uh, she made a conscious decision. I know that she has said in earlier versions of the play, it was heavily focused on the obscenity trial. And then she realized that this play is becoming much bigger than just the obscenity trial. And we get to see the inception. We get to see Ash and his wife reading the play in bed right when he's written it, all the way to past the obscenity trial and asks what's going to happen with this play in the future does it still resonate does it still have a place in the world that's very interesting the idea of whether or not a piece of writing 
is still relevant or not. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Paula Vogel thinks it is. She wrote a whole play about it. Absolutely. It brings up the issue of censorship mm-hmm. because censorship is based on the idea that certain things don't fit in, hmm. that certain things don't have a place. Right. That it's okay to get rid of particular ideas or writings or... Or concepts. Or concepts, art. What I take from her embracing this story of God of Vengeance and the journey that it went on is that, at least in this case, she felt that it was absolutely relevant now because we can learn from the stories of the past. Mm-hmm. We can learn from any story from the past. And maybe it isn't our favorite idea. Maybe it's not something that we're really crazy about. But it still has relevance in the sense that it can teach us something. Even if we don't agree with it. Yeah. I find it interesting, on the subject of censorship, the reasons behind censorship and what is the motivation There are moments in the play where Ash is absolutely sure that the censorship is strictly because of anti-Semitism. He says as much when they go to opening night of the play. And yet it is discovered later that I'd say the major push, maybe the only push behind wanting to make changes to the play and wanting to censor the play is really from the Jewish community and the character of Rabbi Silverman. Well, I believe that, well, explain, explain a little bit about Rabbi Silverman. And he was actually a real life figure. Yeah, we see him very little in the play. We basically see him giving a speech at his pulpit, railing against the obscenity of this play. And I don't know that it's clear, at least it's maybe it's just not clear to me, Is his motivation that this is just obscene, these are obscene subjects, and good upstanding people don't need to see them? Or is there a concern of the Jewish people have enough trouble, we don't need to see our people portrayed as pimps and prostitutes and lesbians? We've got enough trouble as it is. I vote for the second answer. I think you're right. Whenever an oppressed group of people is represented in art, Mm -hmm. that group of people always has to be protective about how they are portrayed Mm. because they have been unfairly labeled time and time again by those that persecute them in society. So there is always a group of stereotypes that they come up against whenever they try to tell their own story. And we see this from the very beginning. We have this group of writers at a salon in Poland doing the first reading of God of Vengeance. And from that moment, they're talking about these same issues. We're concerned about how our people are portrayed. But Ash, and he even describes this in the scene where they're doing the first reading of his play, says, I'm not interested in just writing about one particular kind of Jewish person. Yeah, he says, why do all of our characters have to be a paragon? Or why does every Jew have to be a paragon? So, in his mind, he has chosen a story 
and whatever comes out of it comes out of it in the course of getting to the truth of what he wants to tell. I think that he, I'm speculating here, I think he may have an inkling of, I want to tell the real stories. I want to tell the real stories of Jewish life, not only in Eastern Europe, but also eventually in America with later works. I think at this point in his life, at the beginning of the play, that's what he wants. He wants these stories to be on every stage in the world. He wants to tell human stories. Mm. He's not thinking about it just in terms of the fact that he's writing about Jewish people. He's thinking about it in terms of telling the particular human story about these characters who happen to be Jewish. He is just focusing on a particular story, but everybody else is seeing it in terms of how it reflects on society at large. Yeah. And... When a writer sits down at a typewriter to write a story, you are influenced by society, but in the end, what ends up on that page is a very specific tale, beginning, middle, and end. And what comes out of that is somewhat out of your hands in some respects. Some of the overtones and uh, some of the perhaps stereotypes that may come out of that. Well, and you certainly can't control people's reactions to your work. Nobody can. The old adage, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. And I want to point out, too, that neither one of us has read God of Vengeance, that play. I don't think that you need to have read it to enjoy this play, Indecent. It makes me want to read that play. I foresee in the very near future reading that play. But I don't think I can speculate as to what his full motivation was without having read the play. Yes, that, that is true, too. You know, we can only go by what is in this play to get some inkling of, even with the knowledge of history, who he was and what all these people, why they were motivated to keep pursuing this play and keep it alive and keep producing mm-hmm. it and keep putting it on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we should point out that, yes, he was accused of portraying anti-Semitic stereotypes in this play. Yes. Obviously, there was the stigma about homosexuality Mm -hmm. that he had to face because he had written about a lesbian romance and even put, as we said, a lesbian kiss in the play. I want to reiterate what you were saying in that I'm only speaking generally about societal stereotypes and everything. I I would have to read the play myself to to know exactly what people are referring to and what they are upset about. I can pretty much guess though that it's the things that I mentioned. The, yeah, the, Throwing the Torah was offensive to religious Jews. You know, the character Yankel who throws the Torah because he's angry. So we can determine that these are probably the things that they were upset about. But to be absolutely sure, we would need to read it ourselves. And I really want to now. (laughs) I very much want to now. Next season. Everything that we have read from Indecent that is in this play, God of Vengeance, is absolutely timely. I wanted to talk about, just for a second... What do you think the real issue is? This is certainly mentioned in the play of what's the real problem here? Is the problem that, oh, conservatives don't like 
the portrayal of the lesbian storyline or the throwing of the Torah or the prostitution, is that the real problem, just these concepts on their own? Or is it the fact that Jewish people are doing it? Um, Because again, I come back to this character of Rabbi Silverman and... It bothers me. It bothers me that this play has a good 17 years of success in New York at the Yiddish Theater. And it's not until it's translated to English, not until it's actually put on Broadway, that someone has... And again, we know that there's hate mail. It's mentioned in the play that they're getting hate mail at the Provincetown. But again, that's after the English translation. Why does that make a difference? I can only speculate that possibly... It's because the play is entering the mainstream. Yeah. And it's not just being seen by a Jewish audience where they Mm. may feel safer. uh, They may feel less threatened by what's in the play and how it's being perceived and how Jews are being perceived as characters in the play. But once it hits Broadway, you have the eyes of groups of people who have persecuted Jews in the past watching it. And there is the threat that this play is going to be used as further reason to hate the Jews. I think you're absolutely right. I think that when it's in the Yiddish theater, then we can have fun debating on whether this has artistic value or it's obscene or whatever. Once it's in an English speaking language then everybody in america is going to see this play and is going to see the jewish people portrayed this way and it just opens up so much fear of persecution again it's it's speculation that's my guess i think that's pretty reasonable i don't know at this time for sure but i would imagine that perhaps not that many stories about Yiddish-speaking people are being told on the Broadway stage. Mm. And so mm-hmm. once you get your opportunity to be up there, is this how we want ourselves to be seen? Yeah, would be the question the... That, that perhaps many Jewish people would ask. If this is our shot. You know, and, and having gone through the persecution that they have gone through for centuries, I don't blame them for thinking that. However, you know how I feel about censorship. <laughs> yes, I do. I don't believe that it's a good idea to censor. It ultimately deprives us of knowing the whole truth. I think that when we can hear people's full truth, we are less likely to form stereotypes Uh. and to rely on stereotypes because we are operating off of the full amount of information or at least a greater amount of information about people. I think that we can debate all day long how much Ash used stereotypes for effect. I think that people or have. Or didn't. Or didn't. I think people have debated that. I think at the end of the day, this is a love story and a very beautiful love story. We have the character of Lemel who refers to this play in the beginning that this play changed my life. This is the most beautiful love story ever told. The actors along the way can't believe that Ash agreed to any kind of change or any kind of censorship to the most beautiful love scene ever written. And that gets lost in the 
cacophony of, oh, it's about prostitutes. Oh, it's about uh, all these things that are just offensive to quote-unquote decent people. And that has been confirmed by the great-grandson of Shalom Ash. Yes. We both ran into his name in the course of our research, David Mazower. Mm-hmm. I read an article where he basically said that his great-grandfather, Shalom Ash, was fully aware that there were some stereotypical overtones to his play, but he just wanted to tell a great story. Mm-hmm. Also, he mentioned that his great-grandfather was not interested in only writing about virtuous Jews, right. which ties into what's in the play mm-hmm. about him saying, I don't want to just write about heroic people. I want to write about people, flawed people, which is all of us. And I love how you say that this is a love story. I love how you centered in on that because it is. Mm -hmm. That's the story that he was trying to tell and all these other things get brought into it. Um, You know, and, and that's art. People have their opinions and that's why we do it, right? We want to evoke something from people so Mm -hmm. we can't be picky and choosy about how people react however you can miss the point if you don't look at what the heart of something is Mm -hmm. and that is this lesbian love story and we see bits of it in the play paula vogel really weaves in little snippets of god of vengeance so that again if you haven't read the play you get a little inkling of what the play is about and really the big highlights of the play. The important parts to see, here's what the big deal is all about. So there's a saying, don't destroy the good for the perfect. Mm. Is that what happens, do you think, Nathan, sometimes when people read something and there's a little bit of the story that is either offensive to them or maybe triggers a hang-up that they have. Do you think certain people are not able to overlook that and find the good Yeah, I think, in something? I think people get fixated on the wrong thing frequently in art. The point is missed. Uh, another point in here is, we've mentioned so many times about the throwing of this Torah, and it's, oh. it's not just, oh, I'm throwing a Torah for the shock value on stage. He's showing that this character is a hypocrite. He runs a brothel. This is the this, father. The, yeah, this is the father. This is Rivkala's father. And it's all a sham. He buys this Torah supposedly to watch over his daughter. He puts it in her bedroom. And puts on airs basically to spend out money to get her a respectable groom. But all the it, while he's running a brothel the in the basement. He, yeah, and it's so it's all for show. And the point is not that he does this terrible act. It's that he's not a good person. I think there is holding up of the relationship between father and daughter, parents and their children. And he is not a good person. He is not someone to be emulated. And so if you get stuck on he does this one act at the end of the play... You miss the point of, like, we need to be wary of people like this. We need to be wary of people who put on a show about being religious and pious, and it's a fraud. It's all for the future of his daughter and the future of his family. It's about having success. Mm. 
being looked upon as a successful human being religiously and business-wise. <laughs> I think that the beautiful irony in this play is that no religious dogma or interpretation of it can prevent two people from loving each other. Uh-huh. Love is love. Which I think whether it... it's heterosexual love or homosexual love, whatever, love is love and religion cannot dictate that. That is something that's in the human heart. And you know, I'm a spiritual person. I have nothing against religion, but I do have something against rules and dogma that repress people. And we both have experience coming from small towns where religion had a hand in censoring. I had an experience where we put on Guys and Dolls, which most people would think is a pretty innocent musical. Yes. And I remember someone, some member of the clergy in a nearby town, wrote a letter to the editor about how terrible it was, just what a sordid and (laughs) immoral play it was. And was very upset that I said hell, I think, three times in the play. Like, that, they really seem to focus on that. Because nobody in life says that. Right. We're all perfect, right? But that person proceeded to (laughs) praise a nearby high school that was putting on The Crucible. And my group of theater friends all looked at that, all, all read this letter to the editor, and were like, do you know what The Crucible's about? Yeah. They like the idea of, I guess, um, someone burning at the stake. I guess. But I think you said earlier, this is not exclusive to any one religion or any one group of people or any one organization. Yeah, not specific. This is a human problem. I want to switch gears to talking about something more positive. Oh, Uh, Something more upbeat. And that is, this play has been referred to as a love letter to theater. A big part of the play is about the actors and Lemel, the stage manager, doggedly trying to put the play up in all kinds of places, even to the point of putting it up in war-torn Poland during the Nazi occupation. So there's just so many people pulling for this play, even when Ash himself has a nervous breakdown and he's so troubled by the rise of anti-Semitism and and the Holocaust and all of his friends dying. There's just this group of people who go, no, this is important. It's important to tell this story. It's important Mm -hmm. that we put on this play. There's so many beautiful, important themes in it that we have to keep going. Ash argues with a lot of people. He argues with Lummel. He argues with... Uh, a student at a certain point of like, I want to put the, put on this play at Yale. I want to do a new translation. And he's like, I don't think so. I don't know that this play has a place in the world anymore. I think the world of the play that I wrote about doesn't exist anymore. And everybody just goes, you're wrong. We have to keep doing this. And Lemel does. Mm-hmm. And the troupe of actors working with him do. <laughs> Continue it. It really got to me. Oh. <laughs> yeah how committed these actors were to the message of this play and to the idea of the show must go on. Mm -hmm. I can easily say that almost all the actors I've ever worked with commit to that idea every time they do a performance. What does that idea mean? Because 
Ash came to the conclusion that the show must not go on anymore. I think he was just really disenchanted with the world. Part of me thinks that he just didn't want to fight the fight anymore. He's constantly fleeing persecution. Uh, towards the end of the play, it's even brought up how the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee is harassing him, and he has to leave America. It, it never ends. It never ends. So I think that he loses faith in... I don't know if he's lost faith in what he's written, or if he's just lost faith in people to receive it. But Lemel and the actors do not. Right. For whatever reasons. It seems to me that they just see it as this is our job. It is our job to be actors to perform this play. But beyond that, it's also our job to preserve these stories of our culture. And it's our job to be the ones to tell them. Hmm. It's ironic that in the end... They are so committed to this play and this story that despite what everybody's saying about how Jews are being represented, they are going in there full force, totally committed, and representing this message in a way that they feel is true to who they are as a people. It gets bigger than just the Jewish people. Right. There, are, there are a lot of actors throughout the play the actors who are rehearsing and developing god of vengeance who are not even jewish all these actors just think this is a beautiful story that is a privilege for them to tell yes they're probably very happy to have a job <laughs> well that's true too <laughs> um we can all relate to that yeah <laughs> so wow we've covered a lot yeah i think that the last thing I want to say is about the power of the theater and how that's a little foreign to us today. We all hear stories of Ubu Roy causing riots in the streets. Uh, Ubu Roy is a very old play, if you don't know. It's really bizarre to think that all of these actors got arrested for putting on a play. I think that to a modern audience, what could possibly be that outrageous that actors would get arrested and fined well, for putting on a play. It's not a shock to me, mm. because we live in a very political world. Right, but I'm not aware of it ever happening in my lifetime. What about, um, well, you mean of a play? Yeah. Now, things get boycotted, things get uh, shut down, but not to the point where the actors and producer get arrested for it. Lenny Bruce comes mm, to mind. Mm. That wasn't in our lifetime. It was a little bit before our yeah. lifetime. It can happen in an age where people are not willing to compromise and, and where people get scared enough that they find a way to make other people scared enough to think that they have to completely erase something. So there we are. <laughs> there we are. Theater is powerful, and it can change the world. Art is powerful. Human beings have a lot of power to affect each other. And the bottom line is, be kind. Say what you want to say. Be kind about it. But be true to yourself. Don't be afraid to express your mind. Tell the truth. Tell real stories. And that is what is going to change the world. That is what is going to make your point. Well, hopefully we've changed the world a little bit with this podcast, and... <laughs> 
Hopefully it's for the better. I think so. I think we've <laughs> definitely changed the world just with this episode. Wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? Indeed. All right. Thanks, everybody. Another one's in the books. We are certainly thankful for your listening powers, and we hope that you will return to be with us next time. See you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Theater Couch Podcast. Today's play has been Indecent by Paula Vogel, published by Theater Communications Group. This podcast is produced and hosted by Nathan Anzarello and Nikki Jacobs. Connect with Nathan at NathanAnzarello.com and with Nikki at NikkiJacobs.com. We hope this podcast inspires you to make your own discoveries about Indecent. Join us next time for the play Disgraced by Ayad Actor. Until then, we'll save you a seat on the theater couch. Dun, 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 dun.